listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey everyone, just a heads up that today's story talks about domestic violence and murder. If you or someone you love is affected by abuse and needing support, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at one 800 799 7233. Or if you're unable to speak safely, you can log on to thehotline.org or you can text love is to 1-866-331-9474. When Jen first met her ex-husband, she had no plans to remarry. But soon after they started dating, he became insistent that they get married. While she didn't recognize them as red flags at the time, her ex-husband started to exhibit signs of domestic violence soon after they got married. Over time, her ex-husband started drinking heavily and using drugs. He quit a series of jobs, and eventually she filed for divorce. After having to go through mediation, things moved quickly. One week, she sold their house. The next, the divorce was finalized. And then, on the third week, her ex-husband attacked her in front of their two boys. This attack propelled them into a long period of legal issues, including the police's decision not to arrest him and a series of civil protection orders Jen put in place to protect herself and her children. Her ex-husband moved in with his parents, Mary Jane and Paul, but his substance use escalated, resulting in two drug overdoses and an eventual DUI arrest in 2017. In the fall of that same year, Jen's ex-husband murdered his parents and fled to Oregon, but he was quickly apprehended. Almost two years later, he stood trial and was convicted on all counts. The judge sentenced him to two life sentences and a 60-year no-contact order, meaning he can't try to contact Jen or their two sons. So those are the facts of the story. And often, facts are all we know about stories of violence and murder. We rarely hear about the people who are most affected, about how their lives are forever changed on every level, about how they live with conflicting feelings, about how love and rage can exist at the same time, and about how children and the adults who love them can live with overwhelming grief, and how they learn to trust themselves and find support from friends, family, and community. Jen, thank you so much for joining me today and for being a guest on Grief Out Loud. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So Jen, in the introduction, I gave listeners kind of the brief outline of your story. And I, I'm wondering, could you could you tell us your story in your own words? Yeah, I think I'll actually start with kind of the mushy part. You know, I, I fell in love with this man and we had children together, two, two children. And 
he had a daughter from his first marriage and the first bit was really beautiful and loving with only a few um a few red flags but they were there with respect to domestic violence and abuse and that didn't last the the mushy gushy part didn't last unfortunately it turned it's a story of alcoholism and and drug use it's a story of the legal system and learning things that i never thought i would ever learn and all of those things led up to the tragic loss of of my in-laws and the loss of my kid's dad who is now in prison for for the rest of his life you know when when we talked before we jumped on here to record. I was thinking about the fact that your stories really unfolded over quite a long period of time, like over the past 14 years. And it's one of domestic violence. It's one of dealing with the legal system of love, of murder, of mothering. Like there's so many aspects of your story and, and grief has this way of really like altering our sense of time. And I was just curious, you know, today in May of 2020, does it feel like 14 years? Does it feel like longer? Does it feel shorter? Like what's your sense of time around your whole story? Yeah, time is, time is definitely a funny, a funny thing. And, um, I think maybe there are times that it feels like that or longer. (laughs) And there are times that it feels like it's not even possibly been that long most of the time i'm i'm in the latter position where it just seems like time flew right by and you know all of a sudden i have a 13 year old <laughs> and all of this has taken place in his life and the the year anniversary of the trial wrapping up just just happened a couple of weeks ago and it seems like that was just a few months ago yeah, and you, in your particular story, there's so many markers of time. I mean, there was you and your husband separating. There was the murder, him murdering his parents, your your kids' grandparents. There's the child starting, the child ending. There's so many different markers of importance in your story. Was there anything you noticed for yourself around that anniversary time of the trial? Yeah, I I didn't remember the date. I just was having one of those days where I was distracted more easily and I didn't it didn't even click for me when I saw the date. It didn't click for me until I saw a memory come up on social media. And then I thought, "Oh, of course." Of course, this was, this was today. And that sometimes happens with some of the other anniversaries as well, that they just sneak up and some of them I don't notice anymore, thankfully, because <laughs> I don't need to celebrate or commiserate every one of those. But um, this one was a really strange one because it's one of such mixed emotion. What are some of the emotions that are thrown into that mix? Relief. Relief that the trial even finally happened. It had three postponements. And so um, just getting to trial is a challenge. 
relief that that he was found guilty um, so that we knew we could be safe and tremendous grief. A guilty verdict is a powerful acknowledgement of what I knew inside, which was that he did it. And that's sad. It's sad for him. It's sad for his sister. It's sad for my children. It's sad for my family and grief that it's sort of the final loss, if you will. I mean, he's living, but he's not accessible in a physical or emotional way, which is also strange because it's not that he was really all that accessible <laughs> before. It's just that now there's another legal barrier. It reminds me of when people talk about, I know this is a very different situation, but they talk about when somebody dies and they'd had a conflicted or an ambivalent or a relationship that just felt estranged in some way. And there's always the hope that that relationship will reconnect or heal or, or grow in some way. And then that person dies and that possibility is cut off. And, and I think about for you and for your, for your two kids that, you know, their dad, your ex is still alive, but there is a cutoff in terms of the relationship. I think that's very true. I think the boys and I don't have never talked about that specifically, but I, I know that for me, I definitely held out hope that he would get sober and clean, that he would stop being abusive you know, all of those, all of those things. And speaking of your boys, you know, one of the many heartbreaking aspects when someone dies is having to tell other people and, and having to tell children. Can you talk us through or walk us through what it was like for you the day that you got the news that your in-laws had been murdered, had died and talking to your, to your boys about that? Yeah. So I remember that, um, they were about six and 10 years old at the time. And I had just gotten out of the shower, getting ready for the day for work. And they were getting ready for school. I got a phone call. It was the call letting me know that grandma and grandpa had been found and they were dead and that their dad was in jail at the time. You know, I just started sobbing just absolutely uncontrollable <laughs> sobbing and that's not really something that's easily hidden from your kids and so they they both were sort of on me and asking what was wrong and as soon as I got off the phone I called my mom and asked her to drive over and in that in between her arriving I couldn't help but tell the boys because they were just begging me to tell them what was wrong. And I just said, grandma and grandpa died. I remember that I specifically wanted to say that they died, not that they were dead and not anything, not anything else. And I don't know whether that means anything to them. Mm. It felt really horrible to have to try to hide the truth from them. 
they really immediately latched onto that it's not normal for two grandparents to die at the same time. They also really intuitively recognized that grandma and grandpa were in very good health. <laughs> I remember my youngest saying, but grandma and grandpa had at least 20 more good years. They really had an understanding immediately that something wasn't right. So that was the initial part of telling them that grandma and grandpa were gone. The rest of the story sort of unfolded over the next few days with them. They were not satisfied with what I had told them. I'm very fortunate that one of my very best friends is a child life specialist. So I called her and said, you know, the boys are just not going to let this go. And I don't know what to do. So we sat down with them, the four of us, and this is somebody that they're around every day and they know and trust her very, very much. And we said, ask whatever questions you want and we'll, and we'll answer them for you, honestly. That maybe took 10 minutes for the two of them to sort of quickly get to asking if dad was the one who killed grandma and grandpa. You know, to their credit, they'd lived already through so much and they'd seen him be violent. I think that they knew rather immediately as I did, you know, the moment that I got the call, they knew it was him before they said, I think it was that way for my boys too. You know, I think the other part of that is as a parent, you never really know if what you're saying or doing is the right thing. All I could do was trust that they won't ask a question that they're not ready for the answer. They asked very poignant questions that led up to, did dad do this? And, and then we cried. <laughs> and then I think we went and had ice cream. <laughs> I think we tried to um, pull pull it back together a little bit with some some good vibes. And so they just intuitively kind of honed in right away on asking really specific questions and having a sense that it, it was their dad who had murdered their grandparents. Yeah, yeah. I actually didn't want to tell them. It's just that in these conversations with my counselor and my friend, the child life specialist, that we, that I sort of came around to, they're not going to stop asking until I tell them the truth. And then from this place of having the truth, your kids have been faced with grieving the death of their grandparents and also grieving the reality that it was their dad who killed their grandparents and that he is in jail. What, what have your kids needed around their grief and like what, what's been helpful for them? Yeah, that seems to, to sort of change over time. And maybe that aligns with their developmental stages to a certain extent. They've both had periods where they're outspokenly angry times where they are sad and, you know, say, I miss him. 
I remember a specific instance where my youngest, who tends to lean on the side of of anger with him, with his dad, more than more than any other emotion, he this was just a few months ago, he came to me and he said, can I have a picture of dad? And I said, yeah, sure. I pulled one out of the photo album and gave it to him. And he said, do you care if I color through his face? And I said, no, do what, do what you need to do. And he was very clearly shocked that I was <laughs> saying yes to, uh, taking a Sharpie through the photo, but I just felt like it was the right thing to do. And so I let him do it. And then I sat down on the floor with him where he was doing it. And he just started spilling his guts. And he started saying all the things that he needed to say. And I, I said, let's, let's write these down on this poster board that you have here. And he said, I hate you. He said, I'm so mad at you. I just want to be a normal kid. I don't want to go to therapy. I want to have a grandma and grandpa. Really important things that he needed to communicate. It was actually a beautiful moment to see him bring those things up and out. Neither of them like to go to therapy. I tell them all the time that I don't like to go either. <laughs> it's just one of those necessary things that we need to do to take care of ourselves. We talk about grandma and grandpa and dad, and we we talk about them in that way. Maybe that's folly, but I want them to know any of the positive things that I can remember about their dad. I only want them to associate those positive traits with themselves. You know, I don't want them to have to think about the biology of who they are in relation to their dad, in relation to the murders, even though I know they will. And then there are times that they just don't want to talk about him at all. And, and so I just try, I try my best to ebb and flow with them and let them steer that bus for themselves. They do go to therapy. They don't go all the time. I tend to let them cycle on and off. I've also let them do different types of therapy. So one of them responds really well to occupational therapy where there's a lot of movement and the other does really well with art therapy and that kind of um, creative therapy. And so, yeah, that, those are some of the things that we've, that we've done and that, that I've seen them or heard them say and do. Jen, what's your sense of what is unique about grieving a violent death, a murder? I think that probably the biggest thing is the surprise element of it um, layered with the tragic part of it. And this, this story in particular, having been um, their own son in their own home and no survivors, 
I think has been, I, I don't even know if I can put some of those feelings into words. Um, I think there's pieces of that that I, that are closely tied to my spiritual beliefs. Grandma and grandpa didn't survive. All of us here that are living did, and we have to not just grieve the loss of the persons that we loved. We have to come to terms with the loss of their dad by his now two life sentences in, in prison. Where does your own grief fit into all of this of being there for your boys and having gone through the trial and the complicated history with your ex-husband? Like, yeah, where, what does your grief look like? Where does it, where does it show up? Where does it fit in? It's been hard to grieve for me. Things moved so quickly from the time that we, that we broke up. It's, it was only seven or eight months after we stopped living together that we entered the legal system in terms of when he assaulted me and and then it was just the beginning of all of these legal issues and those took all of the energy and attention that I had. I didn't have any time to grieve the loss of this person that I loved. I was definitely holding on to hope that he would get clean and sober. I understood by then that sobriety did not mean he wouldn't be abusive, having now also entered the, the domestic violence recovery process. But I, I definitely held on to that hope. I, th I, I think that I held that hope until, until the day that we found out about the murders. So truly grieving the loss of my relationship with him has, has only happened in the last year. It's complicated for me by sort of losing the rest of that side of the family. There's, I think, so much complexity with drug abuse and alcoholism that added to this for, for the other surviving family members and then the murders. At this point, we, not necessarily for me, but for the boys, you know, they don't have contact with those cousins much at all. And so grieving that is another piece of it. You have to lose the person, the people, and then the relationships with the people who are still alive. Jen, what's your sense of what you wish other people understood about going through something like this? It's so much more complex than my words can give credit to. It's completely all-consuming. It takes a toll on relationships and jobs. I left a job that I had been at for, for about 13 years, and I, I left right before the trial. It's hard. It's incredibly hard. It takes over and there's no, there's no way a person can separate it 
for others who are in that person's life, people who love you continue to stand by you and try to, to hold you up and they do their very best. And then there's the other people, coworkers and parents of kids, friends and acquaintances who are sort of at the periphery who, who may know part of what's happened or just know that something really bad has happened. I think I would want especially those folks to know that giving as much leeway to the grieving person as possible. We, we've actually been incredibly fortunate we had an amazing school support system for the boys and they were wonderful. And that is so incredibly helpful. What are some of the things the school did that were particularly helpful? They always led with kindness. They always led with compassion. They were so willing to wrap my boys in that safe normal school environment. There were definitely several times that I just wanted to pack up and run us away, you know, and just not go to school and not go to work. And, and even the day that we found out about the murders and the boys said, well, you have to take us to school. And I said, do you, do you guys think you should stay home? And, and they said, no, both of them. We, I want to go to school. And so um, I called the principal and I let her know what happened. And she said, okay, we will take care of it. And, and they did. And they created a space. If the boys needed to leave the classroom and go down to Ms. Pinkerman's office, they could. The, <laughs> my, my youngest one, on the day of the dead, they were, they were talking about it and learning about it and, you know, just very naturally blurted out that his <laughs> dad murdered his grandma and grandpa and that's who he would, whose pictures he would put on the, on the veranda and his teacher very sincerely redirected him and said, hey buddy, tell us about your grandma and grandpa and what do you remember that was special about them? And then called me and said, okay, so this happened today. And, you know, I was really thinking about this. And how about you have your son bring in some pictures of his grandma and grandpa? I really think he needs to, to share more. Mm. And so we did. And they, she invited me to come with him and we talked about grandma and grandpa and we showed a little video about, about them. And that really, I think validates all of their feelings. You know, this was unexpected. This was tragic. It was sad. And they got to share what their wonderful memories about grandma and grandpa with their, with their best buddies at school. You know, I think about what will my kids remember? And I hope those are some of the things that they remember, you know, that, that, the, that their teachers really understood their grief to the extent that they could and supported them through that. What would you say you're most proud of for yourself and for your boys going through this experience? 
proud of my boys for a lot in their short little lives. They have experienced more grief than any any child deserves more trauma than than they deserve and they they keep going and they they check in on me they check on in on each other they check in on their sister they are incredibly loving compassionate empathetic children i'm very proud of them i'm proud that after all of this, I recognize that I am really a completely different person than I was before, that I'm better at parenting. I am more compassionate. I'm more in tune with my own feelings. I am proud that we survived and that we're, we're in a space where we're thriving and we have a good life together, that we keep trying. Sometimes we mess things up and we're better at putting words to those mess ups and talking through how we could do it better. I think that's the most positive thing we could, we could take away. Well, Jen, I, I'm just sitting in a place of so much gratitude and appreciation for you spending time today talking with me and talking with our listeners about, about your experience, about you know, the murders of your in-laws and helping your boys through their grief and how you're navigating your own grief. So yeah, thank you for telling your story with me today. Thank you. Thanks for, for a place to share it. It's, I think it's an important story to share because, because I didn't, I didn't know anything about domestic violence and what those warning signs were. And I also think that naming our grief and talking about it, which is something as a society we're not really very good at, is incredibly important and incredibly healing. Well, and that's why I am so grateful to you listeners for being out there, for tuning in, for giving our guests people to talk to and giving our guests people to name their grief with and to have someone share in that experience. So thank you for listening. If you're new to our show, you can find all of our past episodes wherever you are currently listening to this podcast, or you can go to our website, dougy.org forward slash grief out loud. And thanks for listening. We'll hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>